likely, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right, that is not fair, and that is what we are fighting as well when we say, cancel student debt. Ladies and gentlemen, the lovely, charming Randy Weingarten, who is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, I have to say, in her recent hearing before the House Oversight Committee, uh, they were trying to get to the bottom of COVID school closures and what her part was in that. And, of course, a different Randy Randy Weingarten showed up, just kind and gentle and Oh, no, no, she didn't do that. She's only thinking of the children, of course. You're going to hear a bit about that today. Uh, I think the committee was uh, trying to get to the bottom of her role in this and trying to understand how this happened. I don't know if they accomplished it. We're going to talk to Professor Nicholas Giordano to get his take on this because he watched the hearing and he has some uh, wonderful uh, comments and observations. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, the way we're able to do this is through the gracious sponsorship of Pre, a Preborn. A Preborn has been sponsoring us since uh, we started in January, so it's really a real honor, and um, you have really joined in to help save babies' lives. I want to give you an example. You know, Mother's Day is approaching, and I'd like to kind of feature Preborn today in a different way. Preborn cares deeply for mothers. Preborn's network of clinics exists exclusively to offer love, life and support to pregnant women who are feeling scared and alone and being pressured to make the ultimate choice that will not only sacrifice the life of their preborn baby but take a piece of their heart when a distressed mother comes to preborn she's welcomed with open arms and offered a free ultrasound to hear and see the precious life inside of her and the majority of the time she will choose life this mother's day you can help bring life to both a mother in need and an at-risk baby. One ultrasound costs $28. Five ultrasounds are $140, and every penny goes towards loving mothers and babies as well. When you become a monthly sponsor, by the way, you will receive pictures and stories of the lives you help to save. To get involved, all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. And just give as generously as you're able. Uh, So it's a great time to do it. It is Mother's Day. All right, so one other thing. If you have a comment, especially after today's show or some other show you've heard, uh, you can go to 662-821-2040. That's 662-821-2040. Or you can write us at sandy at afr.net. That's sandy at afr.net. Remember, we're available on all the podcast platforms uh, and if you have friends who are not used to listening to podcasts, this is a good time to share with them how to do it. I have people approaching me at church who want to listen. Uh, they listen to the morning show, but they don't they don't know how to make the transition. So if you could help people, that would be so nice, and it would help us to work together and become the, the team that we've always been on the morning show. So, um, so I think that's everything I need to tell you for now. I hope you'll... Uh, 
just stay tuned. You, you will enjoy this conversation because Professor Giordano is really delightful, even if, the, even if the content is dreadful. So sit back and relax and enjoy this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. House Republicans venting their anger to the leader of the second largest teachers union in the country on Capitol Hill this week. Republicans allege that the union and others worked with the CDC to keep schools closed longer than necessary amid the COVID pandemic. But did AFT ever provide suggested revisions to the CDC's operational strategy regarding school closures or reopenings? Did you suggest revisions to their operational strategy? What we suggested, sir, was ideas. I'm a member of Congress that sits on two committees that deal with this, uh, the CDC. I don't have a direct number to Director Walensky, do you? Um, I do not talk to representatives you have a, of the government. Do you have a direct number to, to Director Walensky? Do I have Director Walensky's direct number? Yes. Yes, I have Director Walensky's direct number. Well, hopefully she'll give it to me, too. All right, Sandy Rios with you. A humorous moment, but not so funny, in the dark humor vein of an exchange this week between Randy Weingarten and a congresswoman. Uh, the hearing took place just recently. Testimony in the House about whether Randy Weingarten was unduly connected to the sources uh, at the government level who kept shutting down schools and resulted in terrible, terrible harm to the nation's children. Well, today I've asked Professor Nicholas Giordano to join us again. We enjoyed his our conversation with him so much before. He is a professor of political science at Suffolk Community College. He's part of Campus Reform's uh, efforts. He's a higher education fellow. He also hosts host their PAS Report podcast, uh, and so uh, and he just got out of class. Uh, thank you for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. How was class today? Class is always interesting. Hey, I tell you, they, the young people, I feel that they're more open-minded than most adults are because they actually do listen, they do engage in debate, they are respectful of each other. So it is a breath of fresh air. There's a lot of people that, you know, will we'll be tough on the younger generation, but many of them are, are apt to learn, and they, they want to, they're seeking information at a time where it's really difficult to figure out what's true and what's not. And yeah. the clip that you played of uh, Randy Weingarten is just, it's preposterous that she didn't have a contact at the CDC. I mean, this is a person that could call up the White House and get President Biden on the phone. Well, it's you know it's funny. I, the point I want to make, and I you I want to hear your points, but the point I'd like to make today and illustrate is that uh, she there's no truth in her. I, I she reminds me uh, through the years of my debating on television and on radio with the left, 
She's qu- she's wonderful. She's incredible. She sounds so nice, and she can answer just any question. And even if she's lying, you don't quite catch it. So it's pretty fascinating. And we'll try to make that point, plus much deeper points that you'll make about the education, what's happening, and the, the effects of what she actually did. First of all, I, what to you, to you, because uh, I'm sure you followed that hearing very closely, more closely than I did. What was the point, from your uh, point of view, of that hearing in Congress uh, recently? Well, I mean, I think it's just to expose the role that the union played in keeping schools closed. And it's infuriating to listen to all these people that played this massive role in lockdowns and school closures and masking mandates on kids for six to eight hours a day, that they're now trying to rewrite history as if they played no role, as if it wasn't them that, you know, was pushing this narrative and it, it's just frustrating to watch because I've seen the devastation on the front lines of what yeah. it did to the student body. And it's infuriating. Unfortunately, these hearings normally don't produce accountability. And mm-hmm. that's my problem with many of these hearings. So they may be good to expose certain things that took place. However, they, they don't have any accountability to them. And even more so, like you said, Randy Weingarten can sit there, she could blow VH, she doesn't really answer questions, she's 65 years old and doesn't remember, and she could lie straight to your face, and she's not called out on it. So it, it does get frustrating watching these hearings. Let me just give a little taste of, I, got, I have a couple of moments from the hearing, so that people will know kind of what we're talking about. This is uh, Congressman Jim Jordan having an exchange with her, and uh, well, let's just listen, clip two. But I ask you, who cares more? You would say parents. Oh, parents, parents care. Look, I'm not not here to be in a competition. Parents are so important in children's lives. No kidding. Teachers are so important in children's lives, too. Why'd you you repost and praise the op-ed that was in the Washington Post? Uh, Parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. Um, you posted the, that, and you said this was a great piece that we should that people should read. Head of the, Teachers Union praises op-ed claiming parents don't have a right to shape their kids' curriculum. You really believe that? The um, the headline of that op-ed was not appropriate compared to the actual work in that op-ed. The work in that op-ed talked about if you actually read you that op-ed. With that, you disagree with the headline then? No, I disagreed with the headline. The work in that okay. op-ed talked about how. Um, parents and teachers have to have a role so, so sh- in kids' education. So should the headline have read, parents claim ha- they have a right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They do? Should that have been what the headline said? I don't, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Well, let me, ask Mr. You, let Jordan, me just ask you straightforward. Just let me ask straightforward. Do parents have a right to shape their kids' curriculum? Parents have a right to have a role in their kids' curriculum, Yes. Uh, Professor, your thoughts about that, rather than my thoughts, your thoughts about that exchange. Well, again, I think she's trying to escape some of the tweets that she put out and the retweets and what she's been saying over the course of the last few years and what a lot of people on the Democrat side have been saying. There there are many. There's two schools of thought. There's people that believe that parents are essential within the education process and they do have a right to shape curriculums, to decide what their children should be learning and they play a pivotal role, then you have the school of thought, like President Biden himself illustrated, where 
that that the, once the children are in school, they no longer belong to the parents, that they belong to the school system. They belong to the government apparatus and the teachers in the classroom. And that's just not true, but that's what she believes. It, it's why we see this push to, to denigrate parents and their role in education and to label them as domestic terrorists when they speak out at school boards. Parents have real concerns. And, you know, part of the problem is the parents' fault because they disengage from the educational process for so long. One of the silver linings of COVID was they started to realize what their students, what their children were learning, and it, it infuriated them. It showed, made them show up at school boards. You know, prior to COVID, if five people showed up at a school board, that was a lot. Now, school board meetings are jam-packed. Sometimes it's standing room only because of what parents have learned. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a whole parental rights movement, and thank God for that. I want to uh, before we. I want to talk about what her role was in the shutdowns and uh, on over COVID and her her testimony and what she actually did in just a second. But just to make the point on parents' rights and what a really disingenuous or I could say liar. I could say that. I could say liar uh, because a follow up question from Jim Jordan had also to do with parental rights. She just said, you know, in that comment. She said, oh, she believes in parents' rights, too, when he pinned her down. Oh, yes, no, that headline was wrong. I I really do believe. So then he asks her this. This is clip three. I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. Do you know who made that statement? Um, I don't know. September 28, 2021, candidate for governor in the state of Virginia. You know who made that statement? I don't. Are you talking about Mr. McAuliffe? I am talking about Mr. McAuliffe. He made that statement. Is that extremist? Is that an extremist political statement? In fact, what I did, Mr. Jordan, was when I heard that No, we know what you did. You endorsed him and did a six-figure ad buy. Your organization did 18 days later. When I did, Mr. Jordan, is when I heard that statement, I called Mr. McAuliffe and but, I told him I disagreed with him. But on it wasn't that enough to get you to not do a six-figure ad buy for his campaign. Well, what the six, what the ad buy did was do what we thought Mr. Koff was, which was that really same paragraph, that same paragraph on page twelve. I just got a parents. minute. I just got a minute. Same, uh, same paragraph on page twelve. You say most Americans disapprove of the culture wars that have saturated education policy. Who started the culture wars? Um. I know that when you have banning of books, like a book about well, let me ask Frank, you, let me ask you a, like a, a book a around about Roberto Clemente, like a book about R- Ruby Bridges, that's wrong. Those that who think, let in, me ask you, this, those this things were in Those Florida. who think boys should compete against boys in sports, or those who think boys can compete against girls in sports, which one, which side started the culture war? Which one of those positions? Sir, I am talking about, when I talk about the culture wars, I am talking about things like book banning. I'm talking about things like stopping teachers from teaching honest is it a Is it starting a culture war if you think uh, literature should be age-appropriate? That's not, a, that's not starting a I believe a that war. literature should be age-appropriate, too. So really, honestly, there's nothing to object to from Randy Weingarten because she doesn't she goes on to say she didn't have anything to do with those shutdowns. She wanted to open the school. She, when she's talking about culture wars, she's just talking about, you know, banning books, innocent books. Uh, she believes in parents' rights, even though she supports Terry McAuliffe, who said very blatantly in his campaign he didn't believe in parental's rights. So she's a liar, and that's what I wanted. That's the point I wanted to make. So, Professor, on the issue of COVID shutdowns, remind us what Randy Weingarten, what was her part? and shutting down the schools as long as they were shut down. 
Well, she was encouraging the, the shutdowns for quite some time. Tierra say in her testimony that she was wanted to get schools reopened by February 2021. That's just false because these people tend to forget that this wasn't too long ago. We have the video clips of her saying that teachers and students should not return to the classroom until it's safe, until there's no more COVID transmission, until COVID is gone. So she's speaking out of both sides of her, her mouth. And as an, someone that used to be in emergency management, as someone that used to do pandemic planning and actually ran training and exercise programs regarding pandemics, it was frustrating to me because I saw from the beginning, schools should have been open at the very latest in September of 2020. Now, Randy Weingartner and the teachers union, they go around claiming that they care uh, about the inner cities. They care about the urban centers. They care about the academic achievement gaps. And yet they've done more to harm student learning in this country than anyone else. They, they've done more to harm the, the learning loss that's occurred, widening the academic achievement gap. We have 30, uh, 30-year lows in basic proficiency ratings throughout every single subject level. And if you look at some of the demands schools were making, the teachers' unions were making across the country to reopen schools, they were insane. There was demands of equity. There was demands of providing every student a laptop. There was demands that every student had to be retrofitted and that we need to create these new HVAC systems in the schools. So when you look at the demands, a lot of them were about pay raises and that teachers should be getting paid more. And listen, in certain states, in certain jurisdictions, that may be true. But if you want to get students back in the classroom, you wouldn't be sitting there fighting for more money. You wouldn't be sitting there fighting for more vacation days. You wouldn't be sitting there talking and fighting for this idea of equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that are being added to the curriculums. You know, and I, as I recall, I don't know, I, I can't quantify this, but I think schools were shut down longer than anything. Uh, that just irked me personally. And I look, I have my teaching certificate. I started out as a teacher, so I don't have anything against real teachers who actually care about their students. I'm, all, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, but the, the schools, it, it seemed to me that it just was a free ride. I mean, and these teachers were out protesting. Uh, you know, well, maybe not during COVID, but they, they, they did take some liberties, as I recall, they did a well, lot they of doing things. TikTok they TikTok videos and dancing on the TikTok videos. It was insanity. Yeah, insanity. And they're being paid for all of these months. Uh, and the real effect on the kids, uh, I, I quantify that a little bit more for us, uh, Professor. What, what effect has this had on American students, uh, this long period of lockdowns through COVID in our schools? Well, the amount of damage they inflicted on a society, that's why it's so frustrating when you don't see accountability. It's going to be here a lot longer than COVID will. We'll be here for decades. And, you know, part of the problem is, so, first of all, the schools that were closed the longest were all in Democrat strongholds. They were all in the urban areas. Those schools were closed the longest. Now, we know that when remote learning doesn't work, all this study, we had studies prior to this. I mean, you're not going to be able to engage a first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grader online. It's difficult enough to engage college students online and they're young adults. So to think that you're going to be able to engage children online is completely ridiculous. And listen, I saw my child who, who at the time was in kindergarten. He was more interested in the other students' backgrounds than anything else. <laughs> so 
basically what we saw was teachers pretending to teach, students pretending to learn, but weren't really learning, and the results are catastrophic. So basic proficiency levels, which were already horrendous in this country prior to the coronavirus, now reach 30 years low, where only 13% of students are proficient in American history. You have 23% of students being proficient in civics, math, reading, writing, all at all-time lows. We see 30% point drops on ACT scores, SAT scores. We see the only 25% of graduating seniors can read or write at the college level. They're not ready for college-level works. When they get to me, we're seeing students having to take more remedial courses, stuff that they should have already learned at the high school level. Now they're having to take it at the college level. We've seen a mental health crisis where students suffering from severe depression and anxiety. We're we're seeing students being unable to interact with other students, being socially inept. I mean, I used to walk into a college classroom, and all the students would be talking, chatting amongst themselves. Now I walk into the classroom, nobody thought to turn on the lights, and all you see is the glows off their phone reflecting off their faces. So this is a crisis for for the youth that we, we are witnessing in real time. And it's only going to get worse because throughout the coronavirus, students were simply cycled through the system. They never learned the material that they were supposed to learn in one grade level, yet they were still moved up to the next grade level. And what it's having is a snowball effect. They're falling further and further behind each and every year. They cycle through to the next grade. You know, the thing, too, that I don't know if anybody's quantified this, but I think about the hardship for parents who are trying to work. And their children were home for so long. I think about the economic uh, impact of that on the family and also the just the, I don't know whether to call it social, but just the emotional well-being in the home with the tensions and the, the you know, the, the, the financial worries and just, oh, all of it is just, you can't quantify that. It's, it's really horrific. I, in that hearing uh, recently with uh, uh, Randy Weingarten in front of the House Oversight Committee, uh, did she ever, ever admit that she had a part in those shutdowns that lasted way too long and did all of that damage, did she admit anything? She didn't admit anything, and she didn't apologize. And that, that's the main thing. You know, she, she definitely didn't apologize and say, listen, you know, we should have had the kids in school earlier than we did. We, we made some mistakes. There was no acknowledgement of the failures of the teachers' union. You know, I I want to. I was a little disturbed. I listened to uh, at least the first part of the the person that chaired this was Congressman Rinstrup. Uh, he's also a doctor. I think his first name is Brad. Uh, and um, his wrap up, the part that I heard was so weak and toothless. It's almost like he was trying to make a friend of her. Like he was apologizing. We should have done more. I know we should have done more. But he's talking about Congress. I was amazed by that. I don't know if you had a chance to watch all of it. I know you're teaching, so you may not have. But I just was very distressed by the kid glove of love fest that I found, that's what I'm calling it, from the wrap-up toward her. Did you see any of that by chance? Yeah, and I think we we usually see these in these type of committee hearings where, you know, they'd rather be friends and get along than actually seek out the truth and get to the bottom of what went so wrong. And uh, listen, uh, there's something that nobody really talks about. So one million students, when the shutdowns happened, 
they they never logged into their computers throughout the coronavirus. They they don't exist in the school system anymore. They just oh. disappeared. And so oh. when we look at numbers like that, well, that has a real impact because we know that earnings significantly drops off if you don't have a high school diploma and, and if you don't get a bachelor's degree. The earnings throughout the lifetime significantly drop off. So we lost track of over a million students. And who's going to be held responsible for that? You know, members of Congress, they're the ones that provide enormous federal funding to to nearly every public education institution that exists. We spend $1.4 trillion a year on our education system. We rank 25th in the world. And I can guarantee you when the PISA world rankings come out next, that the United States would have fallen further behind. Both schools around the entire world, students returned to the classroom fairly quickly when it came to the coronavirus. They were only out for about two, three weeks. And when students returned, the children were not wearing MS in most of the world, except for the United States and a handful of other places. So it really is remarkable that members of Congress can't get their act together, use the power of funding to change the behavior of these unions. Well, of course, what, what I see on their, look, a lot of them, I didn't watch it all. I saw some exchanges that were good. You know, really, there's another doctor who, who gave her, really really held her feet to the fire on some things. But, uh, but what I see, because I've been in D.C. for so long, is, uh, you know, t- Teachers Union, the, the, at least the National Education Association, and I guess get, added to the American Federation of Teachers, which Randy Weingarten is president of, that's a huge voting block. You know, the NEA has been... For years, the largest union uh, in the well, it was for a long time in the United States, lobby, the lobbying group, and for Congress. So I see them just looking at votes. I see them thinking, "What teachers are going to listen to this? This clip is going to be pulled, and I won't be reelected." That's, I think, what's going on there. But it's certainly not true of everyone on that committee. Um, in fact, as, as a matter of fact, you mentioned Europe. I, I almost pulled this. I meant to pull this clip, but we don't have it. And that's she actually had the audacity. In her response to, I think it might have been Winstrup, uh, to say that in Europe um, they uh, they got everything we asked for. They had all the things we asked for, and that's why they were able to remain open. And that's just as you and I both know. Well, I'll just say that's not true. Do <laughs> you remember what they did? Can you please quantify that or what they didn't do? Well, well, that's a lie. I mean, first of all, schools throughout the United States received millions upon millions of dollars for COVID response, and many of those schools never even spent the money. So so the schools, they got everything they wanted, and the unions got everything they wanted, and yet they still kept schools closed. So that just right on its face is, is just a lie. And again, that's what makes this so frustrating. You know, for all the teachers out there, uh, they they should reconsider their support for Randy Weingarten. I mean, this is a person that has made their jobs that much more difficult. When students are behind, and then you're tasked with trying to catch students up, and they keep falling further behind, that's a direct result of, of the union president and, and what she was advocating for in a backdoor communications with both the CDC and the Biden White House. I mean, Randy Weingarten, understand, she's a very powerful and influential lady. She could have contacted the White House at any single point and said, we need to get these schools, these children back in school. Given the amount of money that the teachers union provides to Democrats and Democrat candidates, and Democrat causes, those schools would have been open in a week if she would have said, we want the students back in the classrooms. Yep. 
Well, and I just in a one particular country, and of course I followed this. You know, I, this was I was obsessed with this when I was covering it uh, in Sweden. Uh, they they never did lockdown. They never put. They never used masks. They never used anything, and their COVID rates were so low. Uh, so it just was nonsense, and it's a lie that the European countries got all the things that she's saying she needed in order to open American schools. I think Germany, too. Germany opened up quickly, too, and, and they're very thrifty. So they did not provide all the things that were—that's just not true. Which again, again, that was not true. That was a lie. Um, I want to ask you something, because I don't—I just—I'm really curious. I don't know the answer to this. I, I know a lot about the National Education Association. I followed it for years, know a lot about it. Uh, the American Federation of Teachers was the smaller union. That's the one that Randy Weingarten presides over. She's the one who had the loudest voice in all of this. Uh, where was the NEA, and how do these two compare now uh, in terms of power and influence? Well, the NEA was advocating the same thing, just that the president of the NEA is lesser well-known and doesn't make as many public appearances as Randy Weingarten. Randy Weingarten is a Democrat operative almost. She pushes a political agenda, and she shouldn't be the union president. The NEA, though, did support all the measures that were done throughout the coronavirus, so I wouldn't let them off the hook either. It's just that the union president there was smart enough to keep the head down and uh, not be as outspoken as Randy Weingarten was. One thing that, if we could clarify this, they, as I understand it, Professor, they did find a direct link between the White House and those that were planning the, co- you know, in charge of our COVID strategy, whatever that was, that horrendous thing that destroyed our economy and our education system and a whole lot more, uh, that she was actually, she claimed she didn't have any role in influencing, but we, there was some evidence that she actually did. I think it was an email. Do you know anything? Can but you yeah, quantify that? email chains. Where, yeah, where between... basically you had the teachers' union that were driving the CDC guidance. I mean, and that's what the emails clearly show. So when Randy Weingarten tries to say that she didn't play a role in the school closures, see, this is how they get cute. She says, well, it wasn't, I didn't shut down the schools. No, but the information that she provided, the influence that she provided, gave the officials the cover to keep the schools closed. So, yes, the officials are the ones that ultimately make the decision on whether the schools are going to close or not. But it was because of her influence that the schools remained closed. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so that's great. I mean, I appreciate you following this and writing about it. I want to, I want to change the subject just slightly. You are a professor in the state of New York. You live in the Northeast Corridor, and I found it really fascinating on a different issue, and that's the issue of academic freedom and freedom, freedom of speech on campuses. I think when I talked to you last time, you said that on your campus, it's not a problem. You're, you, you, I, I can tell from our conversation that you, you teach civics, you teach the Constitution. You challenge the kids. You talk about, I'm guessing, just about whatever you think you should speak to them about in regard to things that on other campuses cannot be spoken. But um, we know that, especially in the, no, I can't even say that anymore. (laughs) Certainly in the Ivy Leagues, uh, there is this suppression of speech. It's amazing. I think I I read kind of a a stat. Hang on a second. I want to give you this. there have been more than a thousand attempts nationwide to sanction academic professional speech from 2000 to 2022, and nearly two thirds of those attempts have resulted in sanctions, including 225 terminations, 
Uh, and so that kind of gives us an idea of uh, Houston, we have a problem. But it's interesting to me that some professors at Harvard have risen up to fight. Can you explain what they're doing? Yeah, so throughout the last decade or so, you could say two decades, we've seen this attack on freedom of speech and freedom of thought throughout college campuses, and a lot of it's coming from other faculty members and administrators, where you you have this groupthink mentality that occurs, that anyone that deviates from this far-left narrative is not to be tolerated. Well, what we've witnessed is that the speech codes have grown so large that many of the professors that identified to the left are actually getting caught up in it. They're getting suspended. They're getting in trouble. They're getting terminated. Now, it is concerning to academics as a whole, at least it should be, that the attack on free speech on college campuses goes against the entire idea of what higher education is all about. So uh, over the course of the last few weeks, you did have over 100 professors at Harvard University begin to start a free speech council. And that's to ensure that intellectual curiosity, academic freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech remains a vital component to academia. And it really is remarkable that you are now starting to see many professors wake wake up. They're starting to open their eyes to see that this movement has gone way too far. And it's not just Harvard. I believe last week uh, Cornell announced something as well. We had that incident at Stanford University where you saw the student mobs and the uh, administrator targeting the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Well, Stanford University has now pushed through a new resolution upholding their affirmation for freedom of speech and freedom of thought. So certain colleges and certain professors are starting to realize the movement's gone way too far. Now we're starting to see some take action, which is a good thing. However, it doesn't go far enough. Well, it, it, it was interesting to me to see that this effort from the Harvard professors in starting this Council on Academic Freedom, well, uh, is is pulling in people that you wouldn't expect. Like they have one professor of uh, Janet Hawley, a law school professor and feminist legal theory scholar. Not exactly, probably conservative in our in our sense of the word, but definitely joining in this effort because it's a threat to all of you who are in this. And the professional academy teaching at the higher level and the lower level too now, for heaven's sake. Uh, but and it's really interesting too, don't you think, Professor? That there, I found it encouraging that a hundred at Harvard were willing to step up and give their names because they're picking people off one at a time in various places, and there certainly is strength in numbers. I mean, um, so would Harvard fire a hundred of their faculty for this? You think? What are the chances of no. that? And they wouldn't be able to, because many of them are probably tenured as well. So, And that's the thing. I mean, we have the protections in place, so we could put our name on things. And more professors need to sign up for these things, uh, because it is important. Uh, I mean, the closed-mindedness that exists. I mean, I told you when we started this conversation, my students are more open-minded than most adults are. And I still hold to that theory. When, when you look at it, the the idiocy that exists on college campuses, it's no wonder that you have these major companies moving away from the degree requirements for job positions now. You see a lot of employers doing that. You actually see states and municipalities moving away from degree requirements. And a lot of it has to do with that we're not essentially training students to be productive citizens, to to be productive within the workplace. And so therefore, what's the point? I mean, if we're going to sit there and play games and say, you know, we're going to go with this whole uh, diversity, equity, inclusion model, and 
deadlines really don't matter for papers and, and grades shouldn't be important. We should take into consideration everything that's going on. Well, then what's the point of a college degree? Why as an employer would I want someone that goes through that model when deadlines in the real world are actually important, where you have to be able to balance your work life and your home life, that you can't have excuses for not showing up to work. So I think a reckoning is coming to higher education. Hopefully we see more movements like this uh, where we start to take back academia from the far left. Professor Nicholas Giordano, Professor of Political Science at Suffolk Community College in New York State. Professor, so I now am reminded of why I enjoyed our first conversation. So thank you for joining me today. This has been uh, very enlightening. Thank you so much. And this is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. I told you it was going to be good. Uh, Sandy Rios back with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. I always enjoy talking to the professor, and I think we can expect that he might be a a regular guest on the show. Um, And I want to also, before we plunge into our discussion with Bruce, uh, my husband Bruce, uh, let me just say that, you know, it is coming. Mother's Day is coming up. I always have bittersweet feelings about Mother's Day, personally. Uh, because, uh, because it always was kind of a sad holiday for me when my daughter, Sasha, uh, was so terribly disabled. In fact, I remember singing and, you know, appearing and speaking at so many Mother's Day events uh, with like a knife in my heart, but just encouraging people the, of the preciousness of life. I've lived that, and I do believe that. So as Mother Day, Mother's Day approaches, it really is a good time, I think, for all of us to think about saving the lives of other little lives who matter, <laughs> the little unborn lives. If you would like to do that, all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy because preborn is in the business of saving these babies' lives. So it's preborn.com slash Sandy. And uh, in honor of Mother's Day, it would be a great way to, to celebrate for the mom closest to you. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. Also, want to remind you, if you would like to call us, if you have a comment, you can do that at 662 662- Eight two one two zero four zero. You can, if you have a question, same thing. Six six two eight two one two zero four zero, or email us at sandy at afr dot net. Sandy at afr dot net. If you have suggestions for the show, uh, concerns, you know, let us know. And the rest of the civilized world get this right, and we failed. They had the the. How did they? How did the that schools, happen? The schools in Europe that opened sooner than we did, and most of them did, had the, mitigating circumstances, had the mitigating strategies that we were just talking about. And it wasn't negotiable. It wasn't, oh, well, it's inconvenient to have six feet or it's inconvenient to have masks. They had these things. And the other thing they did, and I don't know if it was right or wrong, the other thing they did is they prioritized schools over commerce. They prioritized schools over bars and restaurants and things like that. Yeah, except that's not true. It's, it's kind of inconvenient, but she gets away with it every time she uh, counters in this committee. You know, uh, congressmen, um, they don't, they can't know everything, and they don't know everything. And if they're not tough, they get eaten alive by these people who talk out of both sides of their mouth. I should know. I've had it happen to me. I got smart when I was learning to debate. But um, you, they are, they are so good. They're so good. They can be so kind and so deceiving while they lie to you. And if you don't know everything about something, they can slip through, which I think is what she did, actually, in this hearing. From my point of view, 
with the bits of it that I did watch. Bruce, um, my husband is a former FBI agent, former prosecutor at Cook County, which is Chicago, and uh, I've asked him to join me, as I always do. First of all, Professor's delightful, isn't he? He is absolutely delightful. I would have loved to have had him for class. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Well, all right, so what did you think about that exchange? Anything stand out to you or anything in the hearing? Well, you know, Randy Weingarten really epitomizes what is wrong with government, what is wrong with schools, what is wrong with so many things in society now. She's just a liar, and she hides. You know, it's, you'd think with the Internet people would understand that it's, this is easy to, to check on, but it, apparently it doesn't matter for her. You know, she'll talk out of one side of her mouth when she's in one situation and say the exact opposite when she gets in front of Congress. And, uh, you well, know, let me just jump in and say there's a reason when I was researching this, trying to make sure to get myself prepared, it's sometimes hard to find. Uh, I had trouble finding all the clips that she that he, the professor referred to, which I knew existed about how she said the schools could continue to shut down because Google is uh, the, the social media outlets are all in on this. And they're the ones that won't allow you to talk about COVID on the internet in a negative way. So it's not as easy to find things uh, as it used to be. So don't be surprised that people don't know. Well, I think it's just amazing that um, to find out the power that Miss Weingarten had uh, to affect policy in COVID. Uh, as the professor explained, she may not have been the one that actually shut down the schools and kept them shut down much longer than they needed to be. We knew at the time, and we know now for sure, they were kept shut way longer than they needed to be. But what she did is she's the one that's pulling the strings behind the scenes. She has a direct line, as we found out, to the administration. Why? So she can tell them what she needs. It's basically an extortion. Uh, She's like a mafia person. In other words, uh, you give me what I want, not for the kids, but for teacher's pay, for laptops, for working conditions, for days off. You give me these things, or I will say that we should keep the schools shut down. And if you try to open them, you don't care about the kids. That is a shakedown. That is, she did not care about the kids. She cared about wielding her power and getting things that her union members wanted. You know, uh, I've told this story on the radio show, but it's been a long time. I feel the need to repeat it here because I, I, was, I did train to be a teacher. That's what I thought I was going to be. Uh, and I graduated, I know this is my age. Okay, so look it up. I, I'm not hiding anything. Well, I graduated from high school in the late 60s, uh, got my degree, and then went back to teach in the early 70s. And I actually, because my husband was uh, in the military, I went back home to live with my parents while he was in training. And so I subbed in the, my small town, which had a great school. We graduated some very successful people. Uh, it was pretty amazing, a town of 6,000. But academics was, was important, and we had great teachers. I go back in the early 70s, and it was like night and day, Bruce. All of a sudden, there was disrespect, disorder, kids were getting, uh, it just was a breakdown of social fabric. And I would say uh, it was, that was the, those were the years, that was the year when teachers unionized. 
Now, what I remember about teachers from growing up, yeah, they didn't get enough money. They didn't get paid enough. That's a fact. But I would say this, uh, they loved kids. Now, not all of them. There's some rotten teachers then, too. But they, for the most part, were driven by the, the welfare of their kids and of good teaching, even if they were crabby. You know, they wanted to teach. Uh, they wanted to teach well. They wanted students to learn. And I saw that change. I had a front row seat. I used to go to the teacher's lounge when I was then on the other side of it, going into that forbidden room I couldn't go into when I was a kid, and sit there with the teachers. And Bruce, it was like night and day. Suddenly, I heard teachers talking, embittered, angry, complaining about their salary, complaining about administration, whereas um, the administration used to work with the teachers. The administrators were not paid outrageous amounts of money. Uh, and there was a cooperation between parents, administrators, and teachers. And it flipped. It flipped like almost overnight. I watched it before my eyes, and I saw uh, the teaching suffer. And then, of course, it's just de- degenerated ever since. Well, the college I went to was uh, primarily training people to be teachers. And I can tell you that my friends that became teachers really did love their kids. And they, the kids were number one. But... They were also influenced, many of them, by the teachers' union. And it would be a kind of a dichotomy, like they love the kids and they would do anything for the kids, but yet when the union barked and said, this is the marching order, well, I'll tell you what, they got in line. And that, you know, I'm not criticizing them personally, but, I mean, that was kind of hard to watch. And, you know, I think when you... Look at the behavior of Randy Weingarten. Listen to her shrieking, shrieking at her members. Is that the kind of person you want as an example to your children? She's married to a woman. Uh, She has has values that, you know, we're a a free society. You, You can have the values you want. But she herself admitted that they have a huge influence on children. And I can tell you, these are not the values I want my children learning. No. Well, the National Education Association, which I'm more familiar with, uh, went south a long time ago. I could do a whole show on this, and I won't. But I just say, here's the thing. What I've seen happening through the years, we, you, neither you nor I are saying that we don't think that unions could have a place. We know that uh, there have been times in American history, certainly, where uh, where workers didn't get paid the proper wage. They weren't protected from dangerous situations. Uh, there was corporate greed. Yes. Okay, so this is my, I've always said this and I'll say it again. There's greed in everyone. Workers can be greedy too when you get to a union that demands uh, increases in pay. When the teachers are not even teaching for month and they're, months and they're asking for more and more and they don't care about what's happening to the kids, well, that's a problem, Houston. And so uh, we have to have integrity, uh, and the be- welfare of uh, the country and of our kids on both sides. And that there's a breakdown of that. And uh, so just be aware of that. I'm with you. I, don't, I would not join a union if you paid me a million dollars if I were teaching now. I'd, be, I'd, I'd stay as far away as I could. Yeah, I have belonged to a couple of different unions. Uh, I worked in a steel mill, and I worked in a book factory, and you had to be in the union. And, you know, I understand it is good to have unions, say, to negotiate your wages. But the point of unions years ago were going to your point that 
there were so many uh, dangerous situations, working situations, you know. Like in the steel mill yeah, where you well, worked? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, people got killed all the time through accidents and through uh, hazards that just weren't addressed. And so the union said, you either address these uh, issues or we're going to go on strike. But today with OSHA and so many uh, collective bargaining rules, um, that part of the uh, that part of the need for a union has kind of gone by the way, and uh, when you see the, the the power that Randy Weingarten um, wields, I think it's absolutely shameful. It's 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 a shame when you hear the professor say that the effects of this COVID shutdown, which Randy Weingarten was well behind are going to last for decades on these children. Yeah. They have problems with anxiety. Yeah. They can't interact. Uh, you know, we notice it ourselves. You'd walk around and you'd see like a, a, a five, six-year-old child with a mask on, and they just looked frightened. Yeah, terrible. It did terrible damage. I think we've uh, laid the case out for that. Uh, so, um, oh, look, here we are. I think the benefit of the hearing is truth, truth, truth. I think uh, I would have referred to Tucker Carlson, the arbiter of truth, but I say this a lot, but he opined the same thing in his video, which has now gotten over 60 million uh, views when he left Fox, and he talked about how truth has power. I've said that to you for such a long time, and uh, it's nice to hear. I know Tucker feels that way, just a, just a partnership and a brotherhood of those of us that believe in the truth. and. We serve the God of all truth, and it does have power. So that hearing was not of no value, even if the congressmen don't have the teeth to punish or bring accountability. So there, that's where we are, and we will be grateful for that because it may soon come a time when we can't even speak the truth at all. All right, well, I hope you uh, benefited from this conversation today on Sandy Rios 24-7. We'll be with you again soon. <laughs>